Please take a seat and grab your Bibles. Um, after the sermon, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. But please grab your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 12 to 23. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your, street, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed. May May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you, be, may you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why my son be intoxicated with, a mother, with another man's wife? Why embrace the, the, the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines, examines all of your paths. The evil deeds of wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For the lack of discipline they will die, led astray for their great own folly. I have the, uh, the second Bible passage is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 13 to 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raises the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, and you are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day again, church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is RJ. I'm one of the I'm the other pastor here in Tungabi Baptist. And a big welcome to you again. And as you can see, uh, today we, we are going through uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, and I have the awkward and but necessary job of talking about do not commit adultery. Um, it can be a very sensitive uh, and personal topic for some. Uh, but let me start with a prayer to ask God just to help us uh, navigate our way through this. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that your presence will help us that your word will not just inform us, but it will grow us into maturity. So Lord, speak to us now through your spirit. Amen. You know, every sermon needs a good introduction uh, to grab people's attention. And it normally takes me a few days to really come up with a really, really good introduction. And I don't really think I have to 
think too hard today, and in fact, I don't think I need an introduction at all, uh, because here's the intro. Today, we're talking about sex. Now, that should be enough to grab your attention. As we said, the Seventh Commandment says, do not commit adultery, meaning do not have sex with someone who is not your spouse. Or if you're not married, do not have sex at all. That's all it's saying. And see, commandments like this is why Christianity is often regarded as a, as a religion that has so many rules when it comes to sex and sexuality. I mean, wh why does Christianity have so much restrictions when it comes to sex? What's, what's, what's the big deal? And so here's the problem. It's true that the churches and Christians often highlight what is prohibited, do not commit adultery, do not have sex unless you're married, do not watch pornography, don't look at other people lustfully. See, we often mention the restrictions, but we don't really talk about why in the church. And yet the Bible has a lot to say about sex and our sexuality, and not just the prohibitions, but it gives us a lot of the, the details of the beauty and the glory and the joy and the mystery of sex. I mean, there's a whole book in the Bible about sex, the Song of Solomon. And I believe this is where we often fail as Christians. We know the things that we shouldn't be doing, but we hardly know the reason behind it all. So today, as I said, we're having a sex talk. But not just elaborating on do not commit adultery, but exactly why is this commandment given by God himself. And in verse 1, we know that this is uh, originally a conversation between a father and a son, as we have been talking about fatherhood today. In verse 1 in, in Proverbs, it says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight. Listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I, from what I say. So this is words of wisdom. This is good advice. This is the, 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 the sex talk that you never had as a child. So three things I want to point out about sex. Three things that the, the school sex ed didn't teach you. And the three things are what sex points to, according to the Bible, what sex protects, and what sex prohibits. Okay? What sex points to, what sex protects, and what sex prohibits. So firstly, what sex points to? You know, as Christians, we often, again, we point out that you are only permitted, permitted to have sex in marriage. So again, we present it very negatively, but we don't really highlight that it's actually commanded in the Bible. Look at the, pas the passage in Proverbs again. It's not just about the things that you shouldn't be doing. It's full of commands of what you should do. It says, drink from your own cistern. Never share them with the strangers. And then the, the NIV kind of tones it down a little bit by saying, may her. But a better translation should say, let her, let her breast satisfy you. Let her love intoxicate you. It's a command to be satisfied with each other's body. It's a command to, to be sexually fulfilled. Again, there's a whole book with this language in the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians, 17, 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, Paul says, Do not deprive one another unless you agreed so, or else Satan will tempt you. Again, it's a command from Paul. 
And see, in verse 18 there in Proverbs, it says, let your fountain be blessed. Now, we know the word blessing there is usually used for God's blessing. It's about completeness, to be, to be deeply satisfied. It's not just sexual, but deep spiritual fulfillment. And so if you read passages like this, you will have a sense that it is point to, pointing to something like being complete, being satisfied, finding great joy and peace, and a sense of blessedness. So the words are not just erotic, but it's presenting a picture of overwhelming, satisfying pleasure. Now again, of course, today the world presents sex in a very similar way. It tells us to enjoy sex, to, to seek it, to celebrate it, and to express it in every way that you want. But see, here's the difference. The world tells us to look for deep satisfaction from the act itself, from sex itself. The focus is on the act and on the, and on the performance. And so many uh, modern day magazines like Men's Health and Women's Health will tell you that the reason you're not enjoying sex is that you're doing it wrong or you're not fit enough or your partner is not good looking enough or that, or that, that so they, they give you all this information on how to improve performance, on how to look for a better spouse, or how to make yourself look better so that you will attract a better spouse. The Bible tells us that you cannot find real satisfaction in the how, but on who. The Proverbs saying that the deep, satisfying sex can only and should only be found in your spouse. The world says it doesn't matter who. In fact, the more the merrier you sleep, the more you sleep with other people, the better. But the world's the world saying that you know if 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 they're not if they're not satisfying you, then go find another. But the Bible says no no no. What matters is the who. Proverbs says seek the profound satisfaction and wonderful joy from your spouse alone. It's about faithfulness and commitment. And see, here's why. Again, Christianity says do not commit adultery, not because it's preventing us from finding satisfaction, but it's saying that it can only be found through a committed and exclusive relationship, that God has designed sex within the sacred commitment and covenant in marriage. And the reason why is because it gives us a picture of God's own relationship with us. So much so that in Ephesians chapter 5, it says this. Again, Paul makes this comparison by saying, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, it's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's saying marriage and sex, one flesh, is like Christ's relationship and union with the church itself. That's the beauty and satisfaction and joy in marriage and in sex is really a small picture of God's relationship with us. And that one day, when we meet Him face to face, we will receive and experience this profound and greater satisfaction and joy and glory, far beyond any physical ecstasy and relationship that we can find today. 
That's what it's saying. That sex is really just an appetizer. It's a, it's a teaser. It's a sign pointing to something more profound and more wonderful. It's pointing us to a greater union with God himself. It's a foretaste of something better. And this is why the Bible, the Bible sorry, repeatedly talks about the church as the bride of Christ. That the book of Revelation, if you read it, it gives this picture of Christ meeting his bride face to face. And so we have this picture of a, of a wedding on the last day. That as we enter heaven, it will be like getting married. And that we're walking down the aisle, meeting our groom for the very first time. That's a picture of wedding with great celebration and with great joy. But see, we normally stop that, that illustration there. But we don't realize what happens after the wedding. There's the honeymoon. That entering heaven is like a wedding, but the rest of our time for all eternity is a deep, satisfying, fulfilling, eternal joy and glory through our relationship with God himself. That the world says, improve your performance and you will be satisfied. Christianity says, no, no, you will find it through faithfulness and love because it points us back to God. It points us to the most fulfilling relationship you'll ever find and experience. And so you know what this means? That if you change your mindset to this, it will change a lot of things in your life. But here's just a couple. Firstly, it's saying that as good as it gets, sex won't give us that deep, innate desire that we're all looking for. As good as marriage can be, it's, it's not, and it won't be, the most fulfilling relationship you will ever have. And this is why it says that we will all be single in heaven one day because there's no need to look for a spouse anymore. That we will be fulfilled because God is our spouse. That's what it's saying. And see, marriage and sex is good because it is created by God. But in the end, it only points us to something better. Now, secondly, sex is not gross. It means that, it's, it's, again, it's God's gift. That Christians often don't want to talk about it because we think it's a sin to even say the word. But again, it's created by God. It's a good thing. He wants us to enjoy it with our spouse, of course. And it's not just for procreation. It's not just an animal urge that sex is given to experience fulfillment and joy through intimacy. Which leads us to our second point. What sex protects. That sex protects the, the committed relationship that we are in. It protects and nurtures our intimacy. See, sex is about being completely naked, being completely vulnerable, that you have nothing to hide, every imperfection in your body is exposed, your beer belly, your stretch marks, every mole and wart, that your, your body is completely exposed during sex. That another person can feel you, they can smell you, that all senses are engaged during this act. But because you are in this committed relationship, it doesn't matter what your flaws are, that you are loved and accepted and enjoyed for who you are. That even though every flaw is revealed, you're still loved just as you are. 
And it's like what the great theologian, Ed Sheeran, says in his song, Perfect. I'm kidding, by the way. He says, all of me loves all of you, loves your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. And then he says this, therefore, give your all to me, and I'll give my all to you. He's saying, to my eyes, you are beautiful, that just as you are, that the wrong things about you, for me, they are beautiful. And see, we write songs like this because the deepest desire that we have in us is to, to come before a relationship, to be honest and to be open, and yet be accepted and loved just as we are. That we can wake up next to someone without makeup, without flexing, with bad breath, and yet be loved and accepted. That's our deepest desire. Now, Ed Sheeran probably doesn't notice, but he's really singing the gospel right there. That the gospel says, sex is a picture of the gospel, which is to be loved and to be accepted regardless of your sin and your imperfection in life. The gospel says you receive complete union with God. You will receive his blessing. You will receive eternal joy and satisfaction. You will receive this great intimacy with God that will bring you peace and new identity. And not because you are deserving, but purely because he has promised to love you. That you are loved and accepted purely out of God's grace and faithfulness. That God knows everything about you. You have nothing to hide, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Every thought, every intentions, every secret is revealed before God. He knows exactly how much you love Him, that you are naked before Him, you're vulnerable, you're exposed, and yet He says to you, I love you. That's the gospel, that you are more evil and sinful than you ever dare thought, but at the same time, you are more loved, more accepted than you ever dare believed. And this is the reason why God gives this command. Do not commit adultery. Because if marriage or if sex is a foretaste in a picture of our relationship with God, then God is telling us that he requires commitment and faithfulness from us. That he is a jealous God, it says over and over. That the second commandment, do not commit adultery, is nothing but a reflection of the very first commandment. That you shall have no other gods before me. That idolatry is really a form of adultery against God. That in marriage you make a promise. That no matter what, in sickness and in health, in poorness and in wealth, during the good times and yet the bad times, I will be committed and I will be faithful to you. In marriage, you're saying, I don't, I don't just want you physically. I want to be connected emotionally, mentally, legally, financially. But I, want to have, I want to have the same purpose and dreams and ambitions and journey with you in this lifetime. And so you have this, if you have that, you have this strong sense of uh, security, that no matter what, that you're, you know your spouse will be there for you, and therefore you can be completely vulnerable, completely honest, and expose all your weaknesses, and yet be loved and accepted. What a great security that is. And so in the same way, God is saying, 
if you want to have a relationship with me, then I require commitment that you shall have no other gods before me. That you cannot say to God, hey God, I want your blessing, but I don't want your rules. Nor can you say that I want to know you cognitively, academically, but I don't want to connect with you emotionally. Or say that, yes, I'll worship you on a Sunday, but allow me to do whatever during the week. Because God wants all of us. Nothing less. Because anything less is adultery against Him. And so this is the reason why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that do not sleep with a prostitute. Because it's unity. It's unity without intimacy and responsibility and relationship. It's to say, I want the satisfaction of what it, gi it gives without the commitment and trust that goes along with it. That even society will tell us that adultery or infidelity is the, is the ultimate act of betrayal because there is something about sex that says, I give myself to you. Even if it was just a fling or a one-night stand, se sex communicates giving oneself to another. Therefore, adultery and lust are wanting the benefits of a relationship or physical intimacy without the responsibility and commitment. That idolatry also is wanting God's blessing without the intimacy and commitment towards Him. And so God designed this, this sex, within the exclusive and permanent and covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife. Because outside of that, sex will nothing be but a selfish physical gratification without the responsibility and deep intimacy. Now let me apply this in, in just a couple of levels. Firstly, relationally. Uh, Tim Chester, a pastor, he wrote this in his book, Closing the Window. He says this, that godly sex is part of a package that includes talking together, sharing together, deciding together, crying together, working together, laughing together, and forgiving each other. That orgasm comes at the end of a process that began with offering a compliment, doing the chores, recalling your day, unburdening your heart, tidying the house. Sex that disregards these things is hollow. You read that and you think, there's nothing sexy about this. I mean, doing the chores, my goodness. <laughs> but see, that is the truth. As Tim Chester says, that sex is part of a package that includes every area of doing life. Sex is protecting that intimacy, doing life together. That real sex, as God intended, is the celebration and the climax, quite literally, of doing life together. Because this deep satisfaction, this profound blessedness in sex cannot be found from the temporary ecstasy, that physical activity that we, that we do. But it's the intimacy. It's, it's satisfying not only because of the, the physical pleasure, but it's because of the deep and complete intimacy you have in a committed and exclusive relationship. And this is why God has given us sexual desires not that we can satisfy it in different ways that we want but it makes us seek our spouse more it makes us enjoy our, our spouse more it makes us connect with our spouse even more it helps us to build this intimacy 
but it helps us protect our promises in marriage too. But secondly, in a spiritual level, again, because it points back to God, it means that the best thing about being a Christian is not what God can give. Sex is a means for intimacy. It's not about performance. It's about the other person. In the same way, the best thing about being a Christian is having a relationship with God. And so here's a, here's a question for you. I mean, would you want to go to heaven if God is not there? If you can receive everything that heaven can offer, eternal life, yes, enormous wealth, yes, all your family and friends and all the great fun things that you can do, yes, all the food that you can eat, yes, it's all there. But what if God is not there? Would you still want it? Do you want the blessing of God more than God himself? But see, friends, God is the gospel. God is the good news that Jesus came so that he can bring you back to God, not just so that you can go up to heaven, that God's greatest gift is not salvation. His greatest gift is himself. Salvation is a means to that end. The best thing in heaven is that God will be there. That we are to enjoy heaven because we will be with God for all eternity. See? Now let's finish with a few practical things. So what is this actually prohibiting us? Our third point. So the Bible tells us that God, because God has created our sexual desires to be blessed, so that we can be blessed. It also has this danger to be abused, which leads us further away from God. Look at verses 21 to 23 again. Notice that it describes your sexual desire as a path. Your, your understanding of, of sex and marriage and love, it's really a pathway. It means you're on a journey of discovery. Now, let me tell you why this is important, or let me illustrate it. Like, if I tell you to, to go to the city and drive there, now you, you, everyone might take different paths. You might take the M4 and then Parramatta Road and get there. Or you might go up, take Victoria Road and get there. Or you might know the streets well that you might zigzag your way around uh, Burwood and Ashfield and so on and get there. So there's no one way to get there. And depending on the traffic and condition, there's no best way to get there. See, when God said, do not commit adultery, often our question is, well, what, what constitutes adultery? Now, we all know, yes, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's don't sleep with someone else. But can it be secretly and continually texting an old high school friend? What about sexting? Is it watching pornography? What about, we said that sex is, is more than physical. Is it, you know, being connected in an in, in, in in emotional way, even though you're not engaged sexually? See, it's really kind of hard to draw where the line is when it comes to adultery, isn't it? But see, if intimacy and purity is a pathway that we're all traveling in, then we know that you're either heading the right direction, you're either facing the right direction and heading towards there, right? That there are so many different ways to intimacy and purity. But the question is, is your intention to get there? 
The question to ask is, am I doing something to build intimacy and connection with my spouse? Or am I doing something that works on my purity and love for God? Are you turning towards your spouse? Or are you turning away from them? And because it's a pathway, we are, we're, we're doing small things that will either help build our intimacy, or we're doing something that slowly destroys it. That adultery often starts with really small things that we take for granted every day that slowly turns us away or towards our spouse. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be, that we shouldn't have friends outside of marriage or be friends with, a, with the opposite gender. What I'm saying is that consider every implication or the connection or disconnection that you're making in your life. But secondly, our sexual desire is described as a pathway because it means that you grow into it. It's saying that your understanding and your view of sex and sexual desire and marriage is slowly being shaped, right? That we create the pathway for our sexual pleasure. And even modern psychology will tell you that how we fulfill our sexual desires creates this pathological pathway on what becomes the normal thing for us. See? That whatever we feed our brains, it becomes the normal pathway for our sexual fulfillment. Hence, it's, it's what makes uh, pornography so damaging because we're training our minds and our bodies and brains to think that sex and other humi- and human beings are nothing but a commodity that we can use and abuse. And so in verse 22, in Proverbs still, it says that our sins can ensnare us, that it can imprison us, that we think it's liberating to, to express our sexual desires however we want, But the truth is, it can be enslaving and it can be destroying. That sex has this tremendous power that helps shape intimacy, as we said. That brings joy and peace and blessing. But if we abuse it, the same power can be destructive to ourselves, to our spouse, to our family, and even in our society. And so verse 23 says that the lack of discipline, it will lead you to death. It will take you astray, that if we're not able to control our sexual desires because we keep choosing the small wrong path, it will destroy our lives. That's why, again, it's a command in the Bible. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Submit to one another. It says, be intoxicated with your spouse. Be satisfied by your spouse. It's a command because something, or most of the time, some, sorry, sometimes, or most of the times, we have to work hard to build intimacy and love and connection. Esther Perel, uh, a well-known psychologist that has spoken a lot uh, regarding infidelity, uh, she said this. Uh, she's not a Christian, by the way, but she understands the pressure of fidelity and human nature. She said this. Uh, we have a romantic ideal in which we turn to one person to fulfill an endless list of needs. To be my greatest lover, my best friend, my trusted confidant, my emotional companion, and I am it. I'm chosen, I'm unique, I'm, is, I'm indispensable, I'm irre- irreplaceable, I'm the one. And infidelity tells me I'm not. It's the ultimate betrayal. Infidelity shatters the grand ambition of love. 
She's saying that often when we enter a relationship, we have this understanding and expectation that we are the solution for our spouse, that or our spouse is, is really, or, or our partner is, is all those things, the greatest lover, best friend, trusted confidant, and so on. And then once they break their promise, it shatters our understanding of love. It shatters our very identity. And she goes on to say that today, infidelity is not only painful, it, but it's very traumatic, and it destroys our very identity. That when infidelity happens to us, we suddenly don't know who we are, who we can trust. It, it, it asks the question, like she said, you know, it's, it's very hard to prevent because we are all selfish creatures. That we look for self-gratification and we all want what we shouldn't have. And she said, adultery is not so much about the, the ecstasy of sex but it's all about desire. She said the desire for attention, desire to feel special, the desire to feel important, desire to have what you shouldn't have, the desire for sin. Now, do you see how, how hard this is? How, how, how hard marriage is? Marriage is about intimacy. And the more, the problem is the more we get to know our spouse, sometimes, the more we realize we, we don't like what we don't see. And the more our spouse gets to know us, the more they realize that they, they want to move away as well. And therefore, the more we look for, you know, we, we, we now have this problem that we don't like each other. Because I'm not liking what I'm seeing, and you're not liking what I'm seeing. And Esther Perel said, there's no solution aside from learning how to move on and grow from it. But here's the Christian hope. See, marriage and sex only points to a better relationship and intimacy and satisfaction that we can have with God. We said that, our point one. That before God, we are naked, that every flaw and sin is exposed. And yet, He loves us and He accepts us. That in Romans 5, 8, it says that God demonstrated His own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while God knows how undeserving we are, He gave up His, his life so that, he, that we can be, once again, be right with Him. And so God says, understand my love and then apply that kind of love in your marriage, in your church, and into the world. But see, unless you understand His grace, and mercy and love, there's no way you can carry the burden and the expectation and the temptation of the world that it's offering. Without the intimacy of God, you will continue to look for it somewhere else. And you will bring in this enormous pressure on someone else. And you might destroy that person or they will destroy you. And you cannot find healing outside of this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for giving us a, a sharp word. Uh, we know it's often not talked about in our church, but Lord, we, we ask that you will help us to understand that it really points us back to you. It points our relationship back to you. It points our very need for you. So Lord, as we uh, think about this more, I pray that you will teach us your incredible love and the deep satisfaction that we can find in Jesus alone. Amen.